first time an Indigenous woman is taking the lead for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. You know, I, I'm truly honored and I feel blessed that I'm able to continue the work on behalf of survivors. Stephanie Scott is set to become the NCTR's new executive director, and she says one of her first priorities will be getting more information on the missing children who are sent to residential schools and never returned home. We're going to take a look at all of our millions of records and, and try to find the truth and find further names in regards to children that didn't return home and work with communities. And when they're ready, we'll, we'll take their direction and see how we can help to bring those children home so that they can have a final place of rest. I understand the trauma, the history, and how to move forward and, and reclaim my culture and spirituality to really share those gifts. Welcome to another episode of What's the Big Idea with University of Manitoba President Michael Benarosh in conversation with some of our university's big thinkers. Together, they'll unpack the big idea their work explores. From topics ranging from astrophysics to social justice, these diverse voices tell us how the UM community is contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well-being of the people of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. In today's episode, Michael sits down with Stephanie Scott, Executive Director of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, on how we can help heal the wounds left from Canada's residential school system. Stephanie, it's such a pleasure to sit down with you today. You're a leader of what we believe is one of the most important research and educational centres in Canada today. As Executive Director of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, you have the sacred responsibility for collecting and archiving and sharing stories from residential school survivors. Such materials will help our nation learn the truth of what happened and begin to walk in the path towards reconciliation. The NCTR's duty is exceptionally difficult, important and emotionally charged. And a few hours ago, we were at the space which will be the location of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's permanent building, and received some really good news from the federal government. They announced an investment of $60 million towards the building of a permanent home for the NCTR, and $28.5 million over five years to support the work of the NCTR. And we'll have an opportunity to talk about what kind of impact that has. So to begin, let me ask you the central question I've been starting with all of these talks. What's your big idea? The big idea, Michael, is to build a National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, an international learning lodge where all Canadians can come and learn the truth about residential schools. And I think it's a, an incredible moment today as to what happened. So in total, we'll receive $88.5 million and we were joined today by the survivors that have shared their truth during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was an incredible moment. And what happened post-ceremony was there was an eagle flying just as we all exited the door. So we thought our prayers have been answered. And we've been praying for this not only for the last 12 years, but ever since for decades, the survivors that have shared their knowledge and wisdom with us. Thank you for that. So before we kind of begin and I ask you a few questions, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey with Stephanie Scott. 
Sure. I'm born and raised here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My family is from Roseau River First Nation. I am the daughter of a residential school survivor. I'm also a 60 scoop survivor. So my mother went to residential school here in Manitoba. She was a young child. She was running away back and forth, became pregnant at a very young age. And when she was sent home and went to give birth to me at the Winnipeg Hospital here in Manitoba, I was automatically taken away because back then they were still taking children. I'm the next generation that was born from that legacy. And, you know, I did not find my family until I was 28 years of age. So I had a kind of a interesting road and journey leading up to that. It was self-destructive. I didn't know my language. I didn't know my culture. I didn't know who my family was. I didn't know who I was or what it meant. And I didn't understand the significance of our people and the power that we hold and the honor and the respect that we all deserve. And so it took years before my life changed. I'm a mother, I have twin daughters and I have four grandchildren. And I'm a trained journalist. I've worked for the CBC, Women's Television Network, National Film Board, through also the Aboriginal People's Television Network. So when my film career and television career ended, I'm also a business owner, but I ended up at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I was the manager of Statement Gathering. I've traveled far and wide with the commissioners, Honorable Murray Sinclair, Dr. Marie Wilson and Chief Wilton Littlechild. And no matter where we went in this country, survivors were always telling us and sharing their history, their life, stories of pain and sorrow and tragedy. And there was even sometimes very, very moving stories. And the one time that I think about that struck me the most was there were two grannies that came to sit down to register to share their statement. And I think it's a very courageous opportunity for anyone that's willing to do that. So when they were children, they were seven years of age and they were attending a residential school and they needed to get home. They wanted to get home and they hid clothes. So they were smart enough to hide clothes in the forest. It was the dead of winter and they had to run home about five to 10 miles. And I drove that path and it took us about 45 minutes. And I just remember sharing that story and I think, if you think about children, your grandchildren, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and what's that like? You know, and I thought power to them and, and I broke down and I cried despite hearing so many terrible things because I thought, what a journey these young people can do to travel home and make it that way. And, and it just gave me clarity and understanding as to why these little ones needed to go home to the places that they were loved. Today's announcement. Given everything you've heard and continue to hear and experience, what does today's announcement, the building of a permanent home for the NCTR, mean to the mission and impact? And maybe tell us a little bit about your vision for how this will evolve. So it's not my vision. We work with Survivors Circle. We work with the Governing Circle. We've heard from thousands of survivors across the country. And they all wanted a place to hold their stories, their life experience, their oral histories. And they wanted a safe space where others could come to learn. So when I think about building the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, it's a learning lodge where people can come and engage and feel safe and ask questions that they want to, questions that they've been afraid to ask. 
and work together, indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, to share that understanding, share that sometimes difficult road of truth. And we are not, I believe, at reconciliation yet, but there's also going to be a cultural foundation to that. We're here in Anishinaabe First Nation territory, the homeland of the Métis, so it'll be very culturally safe. And that's how we're gonna work together in order to move forward, to come and, and learn from us. And you know, we heard this morning that having a permanent home will ensure that you know, we always remember and that that is critical to the path that we're going on. We have to create a space of remembrance, a place that we can share the survivors' histories and stories. We work with about 10 to 12 survivors right now distinct-based First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and every day they guide us in the work that we do. It's important for them to lead, for us to be Indigenous-led, to listen to our elders and knowledge keepers on to what they see the vision is. And when they talk to us, not only to have a place where their stories can be shared, create a memory space, educate all Canadians, work with youth, I think that that's the very first step that we need to do, and you embrace it. And today was a major gift. And, and I think when you talk about 60 million, it's not a small amount of money. And I never in my lifetime believed that we would ever be able to achieve that because people have not been listening to us. The government has not been listening to us. We came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with 94 calls to action. And it's been very, very slow. You can take a look at the communities across the country and the inequalities. And we know there's a long way to go, there's decades of work, but we're here to do it. And we have a full staff right now and every day, each and every day they come to the office and they do the work in order to advance reconciliation. And it's a hard job, I tell you. I never anticipated that I'd be able to do this work and honored to do this work, but it takes many, many hands to do it. And you've said that the landscape has changed since 2015 when the TRC released its recommendations and this NCTR opened. How so? When the children were found out west and the unmarked graves into Kamloops, that's when I saw the landscape really start to change because all of a sudden, despite having the TRC and a full volume on missing children and unmarked burials, it connected emotionally. People started to call us, people started to reach out and say, what can I do, how can I help? What do I do? And so all of a sudden, the NCTR was inundated with business, government, our people, all wanting answers. And we were a small, small staff of only 19 people expected to serve the country. But they rose up to the occasion, you know, and I'm forever grateful because the staff really were putting in like 16 hours a day. And then when it it just opened up the dialogue. So all of a sudden, the government would reach out and they say, what can we do? Churches were reaching out. What can we do? They were calling us and saying, we found, you know, there's a thousand boxes sitting in the archive that had not been delivered to the TRC. And when I looked at the list of what was contained in though, there's audio recordings, there's records, there's photographs. So when the landscape is changing, it's also improving. Because when I hear that, I know that there's going to be decades of work to come. And we've got a lot of truth to, to listen, to acknowledge, and to share, and to understand. The NCTR started a new process of statement gathering to better reflect the voices of those survivors who were not able 
to share their stories during the period of Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So can you tell us a little bit about this new process and why this change? So during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I was a manager of statement gathering. We gathered 7,000 audio and video recordings from survivors, their families, staff that ran the schools. You know, we didn't reach everyone. People at that time, not everyone was ready to share. But when the children happen and continue to be found across the country, survivors have already said to us many, many times, I'm ready now. I've witnessed horrific situations. I've seen children that have disappeared. You know, I've heard stories of children that were digging graves outside the window in the night. And so I think that the reason that we're going to embark on statement gathering and we're going to go across country again because the truth is not told. Survivors want us to be available to them to share their stories and life experience. And it's only going to further the truth because we need to increase what we hold. We know there's decades of truth to still be heard and listened to. And I think that, you know, I, I won't fully understand or witness the truth in my lifetime. I think we've got a long way to go. And, it, and it's sad because we work with survivors every day. They're elderly, you know, some of them are in their 70s, 80s. We have a, a young mate. I can call him a young Métis, he's 82, but he really shares his knowledge of, of being a Métis survivor in the day school. So those lives are passing on to the spirit world and we need to work with them and be available for them to support them today. We're fortunate at the university to be able to work closely with you, but and we know there's lots more work to be able to still do. There's both work in truth and there's lots of work in, in reconciliation. And, the NCTR is part of the Reconciliation Barometer Project. It releases a report on reconciliation on our country. I had a, an opportunity to look at it and see where we're doing well and where we're not doing very well. And so I was wondering what your view was on some of the results in the report. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the areas where we seem to have made advances and then other areas where we still have a lot of growing to do. It's a very difficult question to answer because depending on who you talk to, they will give you a different answer. I think reconciliation has become a buzzword and an excuse for people to kind of say that they've checked off the box and that there has been advancement made. I can tell you that as an Indigenous woman living here in the city of Winnipeg, the fact that I walk into a store and I'm followed every day the fact that my children still are not taught their language in school, the fact that I don't know my language is we have a far way to go. You take a look at the child welfare system and the numbers of children that are in care. So it's difficult to assess. The federal government will tell you that they fulfilled about 85% of the calls to action, which is completely untrue. We know that there's still ongoing litigation and lawsuits. And when I had heard that, and I, I continue to hear it a few times in, in the events that I'm in, and it's really not the truth. I think that we all, all of us, I think that work at the university know that. We know that we have work to do. We take a look at the young people that are coming through the doors, the students that we want to uphold and champion and create safe spaces for them. We have students that come into the library at the NCTR that are on campus that want to come and have a place where they can learn, feel safe, where there's elders and residents and be guided by that. 
And it's been successful for us because I think as a National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, we need to be available and open and provide access to everyone, and that's Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. One of the things I found interesting in the report, when they take the barometer from non-Indigenous people versus Indigenous people, non-Indigenous people thought they were doing a lot better than what Indigenous people were actually experiencing. And I think that's some of what you've said today. And it's true. And when I look around the room, like I, I am thrilled at the number of people here. I can't, uh, I'm surprised. And when they pitched it to me and told me, like I figured it'd be me like 20, 30 people in intimate circles. So well done, people. It means that you're here to learn and listen. So I really appreciate that. And thank you. Because every one of you, whether you're alumni and you're in a business, you have an opportunity to make change. And I don't like to overly simplify it, but hire Indigenous people, mentor, create, work with them, listen. We're very intelligent and wise, and we, had a lot, we have a lot of gifts. And you can only be so much better when you include us and not exclude us. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to be mentored both by Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, and that every time grow in both ways. So I would encourage you to do that work open your minds, open your hearts, embrace Indigenous peoples. Sometimes it may take a little bit extra effort, sometimes not, but I think that's a way forward and I know it can be successful. Perhaps also you can talk a little bit about, you know, the notion that truth comes before reconciliation and what truths do we still need to know and, and grasp in order to be able to move forward? the truth about survivors' lives. We only hold a certain amount of records, about four to five million. What I found is that in those records, as a former journalist, within the archive itself, you see written records, you see the writing, you see the stories from parents that have written to the residential school asking, where has my child been? My child didn't return home from school. There's still families today that don't know where they ended up. And it's just really unbelievable. So I take a look at the records. It's a full truth. There has to be a full explanation, a full research into the archive. I could sit there for hours and read that. And you see the arguments between government and church and families wanting to bring their children home. So when you think about 4 million records, we're going to get another 10 million records from the federal government, Indian hospitals, sanatoriums. Sometimes the colonial record does not match what the community narrative says. So you, you need to pair that with the truth of residential school survivors and the colonial record, and then you'll go on that journey and that path. And I know that it is gonna take a, a lot longer because we've worked very closely with the federal government. You know, Honorable Sinclair is here. He could tell you himself as to the challenge in order to get some of those records during the TRC, but the dialogue has happened and the mandate has been given to the government in order to turn those records off. So I see our people investigating. I see our people researching. I see the NCTR working directly with community to provide access and ownership and control to their records because they haven't had that opportunity. And so that is the way that we need to move forward. And, and we've already begun that right now. We have memorandums of agreement, but it's still a colonial legal process with about 25 nations across the country. It's slow, it's a bureaucracy, 
we're going to be working and taking a look at how do we make that accessible? How do we change those colonial documents in order to help communities have access to what is their information? You know, on that, why do you think it's taken the federal government so long to turn over the documents? <laughs> why? <laughs> Because they don't listen. <laughs> I think that there's a reluctance, right? You want to you wanna say? Why would they want the truth to be known, really? I think, why would they want the truth to be known? I think that it's power. It's about power. I think that whenever you have an opportunity to change that power structure, there's a reluctance. I've seen it happen time and time again, and I've worked in Crown Corporations, I've worked at the university. I think there's a reluctance to give up power and understanding because if there is some control, how are you gonna advance? So I could come to you with the truth, but if you hold that back, I'm not gonna be able to take that power and share it with you in order to raise the bar and have equality. So I think that the government has been reluctant, but you know, there's still a lot of work to do but we're, we're making small headway right now, small headway, and, and it sounds really good and beautiful, but it's not. There's still a lot of movement to do and move forward, and people are doing that every day. It's not rosy, and that, that's not why I'm here, and even though I paint a picture of the grand you know, announcement today that happened, we have a long way to go. And, and when I look at everyone in this room, and I know that you're talking about a fundraising campaign, you could also contribute to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, but I think, so come on, like, <laughs> help, help to create those safe spaces where, you know, our young people, your families can come and learn together and move forward in a good, positive, healthy way. Thank you. One last question before we open it up. And I believe you've said that you have a positive working relationship with the church and have now been given access to records the TRC itself was unable to obtain. What thoughts do you have as an indigenous woman leading the NCTR and dealing with these organizations today, the church, and the ones involved in the harms you are now working towards understanding? It's not an easy path. I grew up in a, a family that was Catholic. We went to church, so there was a little bit of a conflict there. But when I went and was working at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I really didn't have any idea, and that was 12 years ago, about like how huge, how significant it was going to be. We held our first national event here in Winnipeg, and we were stationed at the Forks Riverside Inn in the Forks and we had private statement gathering there. And so one after one after one after one came through the door, survivors, and we saw people collapsing in the streets. They were very triggered, and it was very difficult for them to share. So this was all part of me gathering an understanding of the truth of what happened in regard to you know, the religious entities that the, the children were taught by. So when I think about the relationship with the church, and positive in it, in, again, in a small way, and it came out of a conversation. So we've been working with the Oblates, trying to get records that we didn't previously hold. We had, you know, there's little deposits across the country in different archives, and we started a dialogue. So one day I was speaking with Father Ken, and so he actually 
told me, he said, you know, Stephanie, he goes, there's an archive in Rome that we didn't share any records. And I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? So the fact, I had a CBC interview shortly after that, and so I said, oh, do you know that there's a hidden archive in Rome that nobody knows about, and that there are records contained that were not given to the TRC? So the reporter immediately called the father and asked, and he emailed me right away, and he said, our conversation was in confidence. Why did you share that information? I said, father, I was so enthusiastic. I wanted to share the good news. What a wonderful opportunity for reconciliation and to work with our people and, and to get those records here. So I think it was an important moment for us at the center. And then it opened up a world to listen. So we have regular conversations with them monthly. We're working on a memorandum of agreement with them. We've sent our head of archives, Raymond Frogner, overseas. He's gone to the archive in Rome. He found thousands upon thousands of photos that haven't been here in Canada. So we're going to work on digitizing them and getting them back here. And we also need the records from the staff and personnel that worked in the schools because it's very fascinating and it's very interesting to me what I've learned, and you hear things or you read things like moral character of the priest and fathers that were in the school and, and what does that mean? And so there are notes in there. You should not be left alone with children. And you have to think, why suppress that? We all know the truth now. It's very detailed. It's very graphic. It's very hard. It's very difficult work. You know, the survivors tell us every day that work with us, we expect them to share their stories, but the trauma and the triggers is very painful to them. So the church has a responsibility, and we are not going to let them off the hook. We're going to continue to work with them until we get those personnel files and understand even more of the truth. And it's a long journey, but we're up for it. We're a small but mighty team and have a lot of support. So I say miigwech to everyone that's helped us along the way. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I, I think your message is so well received, and we see a strength in your character that's so important to do this work. And so I, I really I want to thank you for sharing that with us today. And so we do have a bit of time to open up for some questions from the audience. Yes, good evening. Nelson Mandela, according to him, education is the greatest weapon in the world. Having said that, what initiatives are being taken by the NCTR in terms of education at the elementary, middle, or high school levels, or even in post-secondary education institutions? So the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation recently hired Professor Brenda Gunn. She's a research and academic director at the NCTR and has done phenomenal in the last year and a half that she's been with us. She's opened up the research. Uh, we also hold Truth and Reconciliation Week. We've reached millions and millions of students and people across the country. And that's composed of this year we had a student event, an empowerment event. In Ontario, we had 5,000 students come and learn and listen and sit with survivors, learn about the culture. There's artists and performers who were sharing their stories and their experience as intergenerational survivors. 
We had September 30th, which is a national televised event, which had almost 2 million people tune in across the country, leading up to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We also have online programming. So we have hundreds of resources available as well at nctr.ca, which you can access and take a look at. I encourage all of you, because there are Indigenous authors, there's films, it's really important that we work with young people at the NCTR, and we have Kayla Johnston, who's our education supervisor, who also worked at the TRC, and teachers are hungry. So we had thousands of students at this youth empowerment event, and what we did is we have a National Memorial Student Death Register, and it's a memorial cloth that lists all of the children that died or did not return home from residential school. And one of the most impactful moments of being there with those thousands of youth is we brought it out and we shared it. And it was weaved in and out of the crowd. And all of these young people were, I was going to say lighter, but they don't have lighters anymore. They're cell phones. I'm old. I'm, I'm old. Not older. <laughs> but one of the things, as we, we carried this memorial cloth across the stage and on the grounds, I saw these young children, teenagers, shedding tears, and I came around the corner, and I saw these young boys that were probably, you know, 15, 16, and they were praying and crying as we walked by, and I thought, we've connected, we've touched, they've learned something here today, and so I recognize that as a point in time in their lives where they can now share the history, the knowledge, the understanding that everything is not great in this country. So we do work with young people every day. Kayla's got, she's a unit of two people right now, so we've got a lot more work to do and to bring on more people. But yeah, we, we do that work all the time, every day, and encourage young people to join us. What advice do you have for myself and others that are white, privileged people that want to sincerely engage in truth and reconciliation rather than just check the box, as you mentioned earlier? I would say come and visit the center. We're at 177 Dysart for anyone that wants to drop in and say hello. Um, there is a whole archive online that's accessible. I don't think I could tell you personally as to what you need to do as someone that is feeling guilt. I think that you have to work through that yourself. I think that there's opportunities to engage with us at the center. We have open invitations to some of the events that we have. I think come and learn and sit with us and acknowledge that. And you know, you have to, it has to be individual. Like I said, I'm not the expert, but I think that you know, I have my own work to do, and I would encourage you to do some of that yourself. And, you know, rise above the guilt, but be responsible, educate, learn as much as you can, and take that action. It can't just be talk. So, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for this today. And, uh, thank you. I, 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 know that, I know that I'm lucky because I feel very privileged to have that opportunity and, and privileged to have... Um, the elders and our Indigenous faculty and our Indigenous staff at the University of Manitoba to work with us. I think that we're very privileged to be in the position that we are. And, you know, I just want to thank you for taking the time to share with 
our community today. And, you know, we can see by the response that, you know, it certainly has had an impact. And as always, your wise words uh, stay with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What's the Big Idea with University of Manitoba President and Vice Chancellor Michael Benarash. Be sure to join us in the new year for more captivating conversations with today's big thinkers. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the series. Thanks again for listening and be sure to visit umanitoba.ca to learn more about this leading research facility and its global impact.